Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So tonight, uh, since we've been as many of you know, um, having a series of talks on this uh, prescription for happiness that these these authors wrote. Oh, that reminds me of one other thing. Uh, the happiness books. Uh, people, who's reading the happiness books right now? Who's in the middle of reading them? And remember, we there. it's kind of a lending library, so when you finish Somebody was asking, uh, is there one of those books available? If you do, when, if and when you do finish, uh, if you don't finish, then please uh, bring them up here so other people can use them. But the, this, uh, that book on happiness, which has a prescription for happiness that we were going over extensively. Whoa, I've got to figure this out. Uh, we were going over um, in detail over the course of nine weeks, these nine different choices, uh, and I found very valuable. I hope you do too. Uh, last week we started talking about suffering again, and that first noble truth leading to doing this practice. Tonight I thought I'd give another prescription list for happiness, which comes out of the Buddha's teachings. Um, he had a few different lists for creating happiness in your life. The probably the most um, well-known is the list called the Eightfold Path, which is his fourth noble truth, and that is a prescription for happiness um, in one's in in the full spectrum of one's life, which includes our interactions with others, right speech, action, and livelihood our meditation practice, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, and also the development of wisdom, of uh, right thought and right understanding. That's one prescription he gave. He said, if you follow this path, you will find greater and greater harmony. Another list and prescription that he gave, recipe, one could say, for happiness, and that is the happiness of the liberated heart is the um, list of the factors of enlightenment, the seven factors of enlightenment. And I wanted to talk about this recipe or prescription for happiness tonight. I realized that um, people who've done the beginning class have heard the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths and the Five Hindrances and those classical lists. But um, I have a feeling that there's a number of people who aren't so familiar with this list of the seven factors of enlightenment, the Buddhist prescription for the highest happiness. I'm just wondering, uh, how many people don't know all seven factors of enlightenment? Okay, so I just want to make sure this is not redundant and saying, oh, we have to hear this. Good, then listen up. This is what the Buddha said. <clears throat> it doesn't hurt to hear it again. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to hear it again. 
This list, by the way, is in the, um, the discourse of uh, the, the meditation practice, the four foundations of mindfulness. The, the last foundation is mindfulness of the Dharma or, or of the Dharmas. And what that was are different principles to understand the awakening heart. And one of the main aspects of that fourth noble truth is understanding the seven factors of enlightenment. There are um, balancing qualities of these factors. There are three of that list which are energizing, one could say activating factors. There are three in that list that are stilling or stabilizing factors or tranquilizing factors. And then there is one factor that balances both of those ends of the spectrum and also cultivates all of them. So that's one way to see this list. It starts with that balancing factor, and that is, guess what? Mindfulness. This is the first of the factors of enlightenment. Mindfulness, which is talked about as the most wondrous way for overcoming sorrow and lamentation and grief. In some translations, it's it said, there is, this is the soul way. Depends what translation you use. In any event, it's really important. This quality of mindfulness for complete awakening. And what mindfulness is, probably you, you have your own definition of it, but the basic principle of mindfulness is simply knowing what's happening right now. That is being awake for this moment's experience. But being awake in a special way that is not only aware of what's happening, but not having a reaction to what one sees. Not clinging to what is pleasant. Not condemning or pushing away what is unpleasant and not taking ownership of your experience, not saying I or me or mine, this is my thought, this is my confusion, this is my pain, this is my fantastic meditation experience, but just seeing the whole process in an impersonal way, this is what is unfolding before us. And the Awareness that recognizes that does not have to grasp at the experience and take ownership of it. This is what is called not identifying with your experience. When you identify with it, you take it to be mine. And this is where we create a lot of problems. There you are sitting minding your own business, and all of a sudden a thought comes that triggers off some anger, and there is often the tendency to say, oh, look what an angry person I am, or why am I having this thought, I have so much anger in me. 
That's the process of identification. You just got caught. When you start to blame yourself for these emotions that arise, or these thoughts that arise, or these sensations in the body that arise, or start to take credit for all the good stuff. Hey, that was a pretty neat thought. I hope everybody sees what a wonderful person I am if they only knew what a beautiful guy because I just had this nice thought. You know? <laughs> and it just really popped into the screen. You know, When you take ownership for, for it, you are setting yourself up for the condemnation when things aren't so sweet. Because as soon as you say, look at that, you're, you're, it's one step away from saying, oh, look at that. And it's very freeing to see this is just arising and passing away on its own. This is what mindfulness truly is. Mindfulness has some amazing properties. One one of the most powerful aspects of mindfulness is that it is a purifying force. That every moment you see things or you are aware of things without grasping at the pleasant or pushing away the unpleasant or, cult or that sense of ownership for your experience, you are deconditioning those habits of grasping, aversion, and delusion. So although it might not seem very profound to feel a breath and know that you're breathing, it is a moment of purification that is undercutting that habit of identification and reaction. Very, very powerful. It is actually uh, the most powerful purifying force of all. You are not, you cannot create unwholesome karma in the moment that you're mindful. In fact, you can, in a moment of true mindfulness, you can only create wholesome karma. So, sounds like a pretty good motivation, huh? One of my main motivations when I practice, and I said this in the Labor Day retreat that just happened, um, which was a wonderful retreat, as I'm practicing, reminding myself that every single moment of mindfulness counts. Every single moment, I'm deconditioning those habits of grasping, aversion, and delusion. So don't underestimate them. And they are planting seeds that are very powerful, um, have very powerful uh, ripenings. Mindfulness there are a number of different ways one can be mindful. And in that discourse on mindfulness, the four foundations, mindfulness of the body, of our sense experience, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, mindfulness of the feeling tone of experience, that is the flavor of experience, if it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, so you're sitting here and you're saying, uh, and all of a sudden you might hear uh, a bird, if it's during the day, a bird from uh, the outside whistling. 
Now you might be very mindful and aware that there's that sound. And even if you don't take ownership or get into a reaction of, oh, I love that, oh, that's so beautiful, the, it has a pleasant tone to it. Ah, you know, the sweet bird song. Mm. And the Buddha said, if you're mindful of that flavor, and just acknowledge it, ah, this is pleasant. There is less of a likelihood that you will grasp out of trying to hold on. Just, oh, this is a pleasant moment. Just like if you're sitting and there's a screech of, you know, a truck or some, some loud sound. Ah, this is unpleasant, which is very different than, darn it, I hate when trucks interrupt me from my meditation. And catching that unpleasantness of it without a judgment, you are a whole lot more likely to not jump on that train of rejection. Just, ah, this is an unpleasant moment. Or this is a neutral moment. So he said that's another area of mindfulness. He also said you can be mindful of all the thoughts and feelings that come through. Mindful of whether they're pleasant or unpleasant. Ah, this is thinking. Oh, this is feeling confusion or joy or whatever. And the key to being mindful of thoughts and feelings is not to get caught in the story, but simply to know that thinking is happening or knowing that this emotion is happening. And then the last area is mindfulness of the, the Dharma, these different principles like the Four Noble Truths or the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. So basically the idea is it doesn't matter what you're mindful of. The moment of mindfulness is a moment of clear recognition without attachment or aversion or identification. So it's a purifying force and it's a balancing force between these other um, six factors and we'll come back to that at the very end. And it is also the way to cultivate all the other qualities, all the other factors are cultivated through mindfulness. Okay. So now we'll go to the, the three activating qualities. The first of these is the quality of investigation. Now this is, when I say these different factors, I, I'm talking partly on uh, meditation practice, part, partly with reference to meditation practice, but also these can be cultivated in your life. It's not like you have to wait until you do a retreat or you meditate to cultivate them. They are gifts that we can evoke that lead to happiness, just like the ones that uh, those authors talked about. In the same way you can consciously cultivate all of these factors. Investigation. What that means is a kind of curiosity, a kind of interest in life. It's one thing to be attentive and, and be aware, but there's a quality of interest, of discovery, that is a very enlivening attitude to bring to your awareness. 
know, if you're sitting here and you're saying, you know, breathing in, breathing out, you know, and you're feeling your breath because you know that that's the basic instruction, but you have the attitude of in, out, you know, here's another breath, we just had one a moment ago, you know, <laughs> you know when is it ever a big deal? It's kind of boring. It seems like a very, you know, stagnant exercise. But let's just try this for a moment. Close your eyes and imagine you've just been born. I've sometimes done this before here. Imagine you've just come out of the womb and you're about to take your first breath. Here it is, the start of your life. Can you be here for it? Kind of makes it a bit more interesting. Now before you open your eyes, let's just try one more. Imagine you've come to the end of a full life and you're about to take your last breath into the great mystery. How present can you be? Here it is, your last breath. Probably don't want to miss it. Now, one last thing. Let go of first and last and just recognize that this breath has never been here before, will never be here again. This moment of life is here for us and we have the capacity to be present for it. beer for it. This breath is sustaining you. It's keeping you alive. Okay, you can open your eyes if you like. <laughs> You notice any difference in the flavor of your your presence? That's not cheating. You know, you might think, oh well, it's a gimmick. You know, <laughs> if it gets you here, it's okay. And actually, that last one, it's not a gimmick. That's the truth. It's never been here before, and it'll never be here again. This moment. If it helps you to do something like first breath or last breath, which I do from time to time, just saying, oh, this is kind of boring. Ah, if your head was being held underwater, that breath would be very precious to you, right? So that whole quality of discovery, which for me is one of the, one of the great 
motivators in practice. It's like letting a little kid in you come out that has this sense of wonder. Wow! You ever, you ever wonder how it was that you got in this body that we call you, that everybody agrees to call you know, Marcial or John or Miriam you know, or James? How is it that life got here and coalesced into that body? It's all quite mysterious and miraculous. And if you let yourself have that kind of awe and wonder, that quality of investigation and interest is not very um, out of reach. It's just remembering the childlike wonder and not taking this moment for granted. That is a factor of enlightenment. Just in the same way that you want to see, what is this? Suppose you have a, a, a sense of, a feeling of fear or sadness, a strong emotion. Now, the usual response is, oh no, I don't want to go there. For most of us, most of the time. And so we distract ourselves or have some kind of you know, entertainment or diversion. But you can't run away from it anyway. Usually, the more you try to run away from it, it, it catches up very easily. But if instead you turn your awareness to that experience and you say, wow, what is fear anyway? What's the experience of fear? Let's check this out. For me, what I do, another little gimmick or game that I play, is just imagining that I'm an alien from outer space, and I've landed in this body, and it's my job to report back to my superiors what it's like to be in the human condition. Wow, what's fear? Look at that. Oh, what is happiness? What is joy? Not answering with, a, with an analytical answer. Oh, happiness is, but what, is the, what are the components of it? How does it feel? And it's bringing that kind of interest and curiosity that really helps you connect with it and keeps it from just being another mechanical experience. So it brings a real juice to practice. This is the second factor of enlightenment. The third and the second of the activating factors is the quality of energy or effort. And they're used often synonymously. Virya is the word. This practice takes some effort. It just doesn't happen on its own. If you brought somebody in off the street and said, okay, sit down here, feel your breath, notice what's happening. When your mind wanders, come back to right now. Try not to fantasize. And just be here. And do it for the next 45 minutes. Most people would say, later for this, okay? Don't sign me up for this. It takes some 
real understanding of the value, or at least a real curiosity that tries it out. And when you see for yourself that there's some value in it, then you want to put in the effort to pay attention. Because it's kind of like going against the grain, or going upstream from the current of reacting to all this stimuli that most of us process all the time. And that stimuli which leads us to topple forward to the future or topple back to the past. It takes real intention to land here in the present moment. It takes effort. It takes energy. And the interesting thing about effort and energy is as you put in the effort to be mindful, it actually brings about an energy. It brings about an enlivening. And when you do, say, periods of practice after a few days, when at first the energy seems low, when the mind isn't reacting so much, it's common, usual, for there to be a lot more energy than most of us have available to us. Because we're not reacting and we're not uh, getting confused. And it's often, it's actually one of my motivations for practice. This is another little gimmick that I use that uh, I just get fascinated by the fact that one can go on a whole lot less sleep than one would in normal uh, daily life. And um, it's one of the motivations for me to be mindful as much as I can so I can, it's just this little game. Wow, how is it that I can go on five hours or four hours or even three hours or even less sometimes, day after day, three hours of sleep? You know, it's just amazing because an energy opens up to you. This is not all the time or for everyone, but for some, it's not uncommon at all. But it's, it's generally so that energy picks up tremendously as you go through periods of practice, just because the mind isn't getting lost and reactive. So effort begets energy. The same way in your daily life, probably, when, you're, when you've got a project to do, and at first there's the inertia that just says, oh, I don't know if I'm up to this, you know, which can also be, oh, I'm not, I don't know if I'm up to getting this body out of my bed in the morning, you know. You can stay there for a long time in bed, right? But once you make the effort to get your body out of bed and you get going, there's a different kind of inertia, that of activity. And in the same way, once you give yourself to a project and let yourself get into it, it's not that you have to keep on you know, pushing yourself. Well, go ahead, go ahead. There's a point that most of us experience in activity that it just kind of gets you on a roll and you want to put your heart into it until you get really tired. But that effort, initial effort, leads to an energetic experience. So the effort is a factor, and it's simply the effort to be mindful. So investigation, effort, and then the third of the energizing factors of enlightenment is the factor which is probably the most popular factor, called joy.
or also known as rapture. Sounds cool, huh? Piti is the, uh, the name in, uh, in Pali, and Piti, which is not pity, but it's Piti, P-I-T-I, which means a real joy that comes as you are more and more mindful. As that energy picks up, you become like this energy system. And sometimes it's quite exhilarating in a fantastic way. You ever feel that wholehearted aliveness where it's bubbling, the energy is bubbling through you? Sometimes it can be actually disconcerting when you feel that the energy is a bit more than you can handle. And I've had experiences, I, I remember one time in, in, in practice where I was paying attention and I just was filled with not only this energy, but at fir first this excitement and felt really great, like I was getting higher and higher and I was saying, wow, who needs drugs? This is incredible, you know. But at some point it was, whoa, what if I explode, you know? And I got really uh, unsettled, to say the least. Went running to the teacher saying, you know, hey, what's going on here? You know, at which point, you know, Joseph, he said, you see, you thought this was a dry, brittle practice. Not much is going on because I, I wanted the juice of devotional practice. And, and he said, okay, you just do this, this, and this, and there's ways to ground yourself. And mostly it's getting used to opening up and becoming familiar with holding more and more energy. Another way to, um, to define joy, another aspect of this rapture or joy, is a keen interest in what's going on. You just become very focused and interested. And just like in your daily life, sometimes when you have when you've really given yourself wholeheartedly to something, there's a kind of fullness and aliveness and joy just from giving yourself fully over to it. This is very much akin to piti, to this rapture. And it comes through the development of strong mindfulness. But it can also come in one's daily life, even not on an intensive retreat experience, just by letting your natural curiosity give rise to real interest. The more you pay attention, the more fascinating things become. And I've used the example some of you have heard. When I was younger, I would do this a lot. Uh, but even now, still do, uh, looking at a shaft of sunlight. You ever look at a shaft of sunlight coming through the window? And you ever look up close? What's going on there? You know, how many people have done that? Most. Okay. There's this whole dance going on there of dust. Right? And if you said to somebody, or somebody said to you, what are you doing? And you say, I'm looking at some dust. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. Sounds like an interesting day. I'll see you later. But actually, it's fascinating, isn't it? 
wow, look what's going on there. And there can be, a, just for me, I, I used to do that a lot. You know, it was like there was this doorway to this whole world that was normally, you know, I was normally blind to. This intense, keen interest you can bring it to anything. If you can bring it to dust, dancing, you know, you could bring it to anything. It's all magical. I, I remember having this uh, uh, conversation with my son Adam when he was about four or so. I forget exactly how old, you know, and he was talking about magic. He said, well, is there such, what is magic, you know? And I was saying how it's all magical. Oh yeah, well what, what's magical? You know, and I don't know if we looked at some dust, but then I started going around the house and I said, um, I remember there was a cassette of Sesame Street, you know, that was on the table and there was a cassette player. And I said, here, like you see this, you know, what is this, you know? Oh, it's cassette. I said, Bert and Ernie, are ready to come alive for you, you know, watch, you know, press the button and there comes, you know, everyone makes mistakes, oh yes they do, it was my favorite <laughs> Sesame Street song, right? Yeah. How does that happen? You know, where's Burton? We looked for Burton and Ernie, you know, where are they? Oh, I don't know, I say, it's magic, right? And then we turn on the light switch, you know, how does that happen? I don't know, how does it happen? I said, I don't know either, you know. It's all magic. How does it happen that I'm having a thought and then giving rise to some words through potassium, sodium chemistry in my brain that translates into then action and words that come through the vocal cords that go through space hit your eardrum, get translated into information in your brain, and I can say something like, beautiful, and you can have one reaction. Or I can say something like, ugly, and you can have another reaction. How does that happen? I don't know. It's magic. That's the kind of keen interest or joy that you can have just by surrendering. That's this quality of awe and wonder, which is a kind of further step of investigation, letting yourself be amazed by it all. So all of these are quite enlivening aspects that come along with mindfulness. Then there are three factors that balance out that energetic activating um, side, which are stabilizing, stilling, composing. And the three factors begin with the factor of calm. It's wonderful, isn't it? You come to sit, that's probably one of the first things that people get in touch with um, when they're not very restless. As you sit here for 40 minutes or so, and you stop the busyness and the stimulation, and you just try to go within, there's a calming effect. 
even if you're spacing out, even if you're drifting off, even if you're on Pluto for all intents and purposes, you know, you might think, well, what's the point of that? But actually, one thing that you're cultivating, which is a very rare experience in this world that most of us live in, is calm. If nothing else happened, just giving yourself a break from the action is incredibly helpful. And there can be all different levels of calm. There can be a deep, profound calm that is experienced in the meditation that perhaps many of you have uh, know for yourselves. This is a kind of tranquilizing, stilling. It's a stilling, a settling of the um, the energy. And it's a factor of enlightenment. A second of these stilling qualities is the factor of concentration. And it's got it's slightly different. It can be with calm, but not necessarily. Calm is a kind of settling down, a stilling that comes from settling down. Concentration, or samadhi, is a, is a stilling that comes from focusing. It comes from a one-pointed connection with what's happening. You can actually be concentrated and not necessarily calm. Just like you can be calm and not necessarily concentrated. Probably know that one, right? Oh, I wasn't quite here, but it's calm. Yeah. <laughs> like I say, that's okay. But if you want the full flowering of the practice, concentration is a very key component. And what concentration, there's a few different kinds of concentration. One kind of concentration is fixing the attention on one particular point, like the breath, or like loving kindness and repeating a phrase over and over, or like an energy center, or some kind of visualization, or staring at a candle, just unifying the mind. In, I think it's in uh, Jesus' teachings, it says, he says, uh, if thine eye be single, then you will know the kingdom of heheven. Right? That is what, is what he's talking about. Unifying the mind, the mind in samadhi or in the deep states of concentration, what are called the jhanas, deep states of absorption. But you don't have to have that kind of laser-like concentration in order for awakening to happen. You can have a concentration that is called moment-to-moment -moment concentration, or kanika samadhi, which is a connection with this moment, and a connection with this moment, and then a connection with this moment, even if it's changing experience. You can have a, uh, an awareness of the breath, and then awareness of a sound, and then awareness of an emotion, and awareness of a sensation, and 
be connected from one moment to another. That is also sometimes called Vipassana concentration. That kind of connection comes from moments of mindfulness building on each other. So the more effort you put into being mindful, the greater the moments of mindfulness, particularly in a retreat setting, and those moments of mindfulness build a momentum to develop into a concentration. That is one of the reasons why retreats are so um, valued and so powerful, because they create a situation where there's a minimal, minimal kind of external input, external stimulation, where there's a whole support of other people having the same um, task or goal of being here, and you are gently reminding yourself over and over, come back, come back. And the way you come back is the key to concentration. Not with judgment, but just with a, a sincere commitment to come back. And through that kind of concentration, you start to penetrate through the, the veils of confusion and illusion. So this is the second of these stilling factors. The, the third of the stilling, which is the last of the seven factors, is the quality of equanimity, or called upekka in Pali. Uh, U-P-E-K-K-H-A, if you're interested. Upekka. Equanimity is another facet of stilling. There's a stilling in the calm that comes from settling. There's a stilling of concentration, which comes from a kind of focus. And the stilling of equanimity is that of non-reactiveness. That there is a spaciousness that allows for anything. Seeing all the, the joys and the sorrows, and here we are open to it all. Equanimity is different from indifference. That's the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference or apathy, where it seems like you are not ruffled or bothered by things, but it's because you're removed or detached. Oh well, you know, who cares? That's not equanimity. Equanimity still has caring in it, but there is a spaciousness and an ease. And it's actually the moment that precedes the liberated heart or mind, that experience of awakening, is usually defined as high equanimity, where there's a balance, where all the factors come into balance, and there is a real, a deep ease that lets go of any kind of movement of trying, of making anything happen, of becoming, and that opening of equanimity 
is the preceding moment to the liberated heart or mind. So those are the, the stilling factors, calm, concentration, equanimity. The energizing factors, investigation, energy, and rapture or joy. And then mindfulness is the balancing factor because it has both an alert and a receptive quality to it. That's where the balance is. You have to have some alertness to know what's happening, but there's also a receiving the experience, not pouncing on it, just being open to it. And the, this curious property of mindfulness is that it balances both of those both sides of uh, the, that equation, and it also cultivates all those factors. So that is the prescription that the Buddha gave. When all of those factors are ripe, there is the experience of waking up. Seven factors of enlightenment. So, I wonder if there's any questions or comments uh, before we, we close. We have about four or five minutes. Any, any question about that or might say your name first? John. Um, I, the way you presented that, it it seemed to me to be, or could easily be taken very intimidating. That that um, you know, in awakening is a big deal. That you have to go through all of these steps. And the teaching that I've loved so much is Ajahn Amaro's teaching that that enlightenment is in every moment of existence. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, maybe you could say something on that. Both true. It's just what vantage point you want to take. Enlightenment is a big deal. It is. This is not... It. And it's very distant. I mean, it could be made very distant with mm -hmm. that. Teaching. Yes. Okay. So. And this is actually uh, just the, 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 uh, one of the fascinating things about, say, this retreat that I'm going to be going on, which is a, a blending of Tibetan Dzogchen practice, which is just really letting go and not trying at all, and Theravadan practice, although Ajahn Amro is, is more of a Dzogchen style, but there is uh, most of the Theravadan world is, and most of what the Buddha taught also, strive on diligently, he said, you know, is it takes tremendous effort. It does. Now, if you, if you get put off by that tremendous effort, the thing to keep in mind is to be in this moment is requires very little effort. In fact, it's a not doing.
to just receive this moment. And it's absolutely true. In the moment that you're mindful, all of those factors can be present. But if you're talking about the liberated heart, more than just this moment, but for an uprooting of tendencies, this takes, this is not just something to kind of kick back and wait to come. And so at various times in my own practice, I've been very motivated to work my, my butt off you know, because I could see the more energy and effort I put into being mindful, the, the, the more the practice would come alive. That's just how it works. And at other times, I could see I was beating myself, my, knocking my head against the wall because I was trying too hard. And went a whole other, uh, took a whole other approach of really just relaxing. And they're both true. It's not one is the right way and the other one is the wrong way. It's just, if you're looking at it from surrendering to this moment, it's available in every moment. If you're looking at it as a, a process of purification, of cultivation, then it's more than just uh, relaxing back. It takes a tremendous intention. So they're both true. And using whichever one inspires you for where you're at in your practice, which can change over time. Um, I'm Anne and I had an uh, email today from a friend who said I have been flying out of control all summer and you know I really know that and that's the opposite of what we've been talking about. And it means that whirling from event to event without any mindfulness at all. And I, I really know that feeling that, wow, this past month was a blur. Um, and my point is, I think that we know um, once, as you say, you get the habit of mindfulness you know when you're passing through your life and not having any mindfulness is you're not there. Uh, everything is on the periphery. Uh, it's as if you're um, uh, flying along out of control. And the benefit of practice is that you can catch yourself doing that and say, wow, I haven't I haven't known what I've been doing. I haven't been mindful for the past week or the past month. Mm -hmm. It's very important to me. Yeah. And it's never too late. It's just starting again right in this moment. Yeah. One thing about these factors is as you practice, you can, if you know the list, you can take a look and see where you're out of balance. You know, it's a lot of times when people come into an interview for, uh, you know, on a retreat, I'll be looking at the, at the factors in this way and seeing, oh, there's a lot of energy, but, but not much calm. 
so that'll be the direction. Or somebody else might be very calm, but kind of, but low energy, and I'll look at that. Or somebody else might have um, uh, not much equanimity, and that's the place to focus on. Or somebody might be doing the practice, and it looks, it seems like it's really, like they're really there, but there's very little investigation or joy. And so you can, you can look in yourself and see, ah, I, maybe I need a little bit more joy. You know, not only in your formal meditation, but in your daily life. You know, probably most of us could use a little bit more joy. You know? It's not cheating. You know? It's bringing some uplifting and nourishment into your heart so you can then be here more for your life. That's not to kind of pretend that everything is okay, but to nourish yourself. Or maybe you need a little bit more um, investigation. What really is going on? Because it takes courage to investigate. So you can use these, and the amazing thing about them is that you can consciously evoke them just by having the intention, ah, Let's cultivate more investigation. You can pretend to be interested, and that gets the ball rolling. Well, what would it be like? What would it be like if I, if I, was interested, even though I'm not? You know. Well, if I was interested, then I'd look more carefully, and then all of a sudden, that starts it. You know. So with all of these, you can consciously cultivate them, evoke them. Okay, we should probably end. So um, maybe uh, play around with them this week. If you happen to hear one in that list that you say, oh, that's one I could really use a bit more, just take it on as a practice this week. Nobody's giving you a grade, but just see what it's like to consciously bring it more into your, uh, your meditation or your attitude in your life. Okay, so as we close, just breathing through your heart center. Let your heart be at ease and breathe in kindness. And goodness, just fill your whole body with it and breathe it out. And then send some kind thoughts to yourself. May I have happiness in my life. Just getting in touch with that intention. May I have peace in my life. May I express my love well. May I be happy. And then share that thought with everyone here and 
with all beings everywhere. As I want happiness for myself, may all beings be happy. As I want peace, may all beings have peace in their lives. As I want love, may all beings grow in love and kindness and express their love well. May all beings everywhere be happy. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on September 9, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.